is joining us to talk about her series which is set during the 14th century plagues in Britain. Esty Sykes, Sarah, lives in Kent with her husband. She's a graduate from Manchester University and has an MA in writing from Sheffield Hallam. She attended the novel writing course at literary agents Curtis Brown where she was inspired to finish her first novel. She's also written for radio and has developed screenplays with Arts Council funding. Ooh, wonderful. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to A Slice of Medieval. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Derek. Thank you for asking me along. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Derek and I, we had a list of subjects we wanted to discuss that neither of us were really knowledgeable about. And one of them was the plague, mm-hmm. the Black Death. And so we've been looking around for a while um, for an author who might be able to help us with the Black Death. And we, I'd seen Plagueland a while ago. And I've actually listened to it on um, Audible. And then we saw that you had a new book coming out, The Good Death. So we were like, oh, S.D. Sykes might be the person to talk to us. So thank you for filling our gap in our knowledge. No pressure. (laughs) No pressure. Well, you're very welcome. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a fantastic, it's a very interesting subject. So, um, So thank you for... Thank you for asking me along to to talk about it. Yeah, it's a wonderful subject, and I do like the way you um, combine the plague and murder mysteries. What made you set your stories in the time of plague? Okay, so um, I think uh, anything that is a natural, well, yeah, it's a natural disaster in the way that the plague was, is is it's kind of an irresistible setting for a writer, particularly if you like that kind of, slightly gothic feel and and it doesn't come much more gothic than than the plague um it was such a pivotal moment in our history i you know i really believe that um it killed 50 percent of the population in 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 england and therefore it had such long ranging uh effects on society um you know, from all sorts of things, from the empowerment of the poorer people in society through to, I believe, the Reformation. I, I think you can trace all of all of those and the end of feudalism, all the, all of those things back to to the plague. And I think sometimes it's slightly in history, it's seen as this natural disaster. There's a lot about the actual the etymology of you know the the actual bacteria that caused the plague and all those sorts of things, without actually an analysis of how it changed society. Um, and it wasn't we didn't see society collapse. That was the really interesting thing. We, it, it carried on, but it just changed. It, it changed slowly afterwards. So mm. so it was a fantastic time for me to set an all. Um, and also to see if anyone would care about a murder happening when so many people had already died mm. of plague. So that that was that was it really. <laughs> you did get me wondering about how many people did murder people during the plague and got away with it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's that was 
probably where I, you know when I was first starting to think about it mm. those are the sorts of questions I was asking myself as a, as a writer you know would anyone care mm. who would use that opportunity as a you know a, a way to disguise that what they'd done um yeah it must have happened yeah, yeah definitely but I think I think you're absolutely right about the effects because I've just been doing a book on the Wars of the Roses, but in terms of the impact on society, there's nothing like the Black Death at all. It's just so much bigger. It just sort of everybody questions everything after that. They do. So I agree with you. It's just huge in terms of its impact on well ordinary people as well as you know those who have power. Yes, I mean the, the people in power were very much worried about uh, you know the empowerment of the poorer people in society because of the way it affected their own wealth, their own farms. Suddenly, if you've got a load of people who won't work for you anymore because you know there's a massive chronic shortage of labour, then yeah, that's seriously worrying. And and you know you see post plague, you see that whole kind of run up to the peasants' revolt, and it wouldn't have happened without mm. the without the Black Death. No, no. In terms of how how it affected, it's funny because reading The Good Death, knowing that we were talking to you, I was kind of focused on what people thought about it and how it affected them in their everyday lives. Because obviously having gone through COVID, yes. <laughs> we might have a few more clues now about how such a sort of pandemic affected people than we previously would have done. What's your take on on how it affected their everyday lives. I mean, during the during the actual Black Death itself, during the plague, obviously there was there was panic. There was um, mm. a kind of a kind of there was a sort of nihilism as well amongst a group of people. You know, we're going to go out and just party and get drunk, and you know, the world's going to end. So why not? <laughs> there was that side of things. Then there was a lot of questioning as to yeah yeah what because they, they didn't know what you know we know it was a bacteria called Yersinia pestis, but they didn't know that. They didn't understand it, mm. what it was at all. So mm. what caused this? You know, so there was great questioning, um, a great fear. Uh, there was all sorts of other, talking about COVID, there were all sorts of other comparisons you could say in terms of just daft things like um, there was, a you know, the way that we were rushing out and buying uh, hand gel. Do you remember the hand gel thing? Um but there was a run on gloves before, you know, you couldn't get hold of gloves in London. Before. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I remember it well. But then uh, I think you yeah. were going to say toilet roll then, were you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think, no, well, you know, that was a, what was that about? It was a kind of a pointless kind of panic stations. But I think there was all sorts of, depending on your views, there were all sorts of pointless things going on before, during the, the plague as well. Some reactions mm. to it, things like you know, the flagellants, people yeah. rushing around the country, sort of beating themselves in the in the hope that this would somehow stop yeah. the plague from happening. And so, um, yeah, and then there was also, you know, people would flee. They understood enough to know that, um, you know, there's that old thing, but I think it was Hippocrates, Hippocrates said, you know, fly quickly, go far, return slowly. And so they started to know that, you, mm. you know, the best thing to do was to get out, out of its path if you could. But of course, that was mm. more, more of the preserve of the richer in society because they could. You, nobody in the royal family died during that. That's mm. the interesting thing, isn't it? In, you know, Edward III's family and... and Just his daughter Joan, wasn't it? And she was in France at the That's time. right, exactly. But that's only because she travelled. Everybody else yeah. was... Was was safe, whereas obviously you know the poorer society didn't have mm. that advantage. They say would would flee if they could, 
but you know during the pandemic our pandemic you saw sort of um if you remember this but the kind of the super rich were just they took to their yachts and kind of <laughs> just, <laughs> just headed out to the mediterranean or the caribbean and yeah so yeah um mm. there were lots of lots of comparisons to to the way we behaved i, I suppose fear panic um questioning what caused it also conspiracy theories in the way we had mm. um mm. Well, even now there's great questions about how COVID began, but in terms of the Black Death, there were all sorts of people looked for all sorts of reasons, which which we could laugh at now, but really meant something to them uh, at the time to do with with sin, to do with yes. other, to do with um, you know, bad planetary alignments, all sorts of very medieval. You know that kind of you know you, we all write in that period. There's a, there's the medieval mind, isn't there? The, the, Looking for an explanation, aren't they? They're looking for a reason for this yeah. happening because, and in those days, it must have been the wrath of God because that was the central tenet of the, all their lives. The church Absolutely. ruled when they woke up, when they went to bed, and what they did during the day. So, yeah, 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 it was it very much the, the wrath of God. And then, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about the Reformation and uh, the seeds of that began after the plague because people did feel that there had been this great punishment of society for all sorts of mm. things to do, depending on you know, where you came from it, um, to do with Catholicism, to do with indulgences, to do with mm. the way that the church was uh, seen to be amassing power and wealth through to the denial of people being allowed to read the scriptures. If you look at Wycliffe, mm. yeah. He was in that period after the Black yeah. Death, so he was very much informed mm. by the deaths of that time. So, mm. so yeah, it's all it's all a patchwork, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that struck me in the Good Death is that you have kind of juxtaposed that the certainty and the uncertainty, that the certainty of those who believed that, like the monks, they would be absolutely mm. fine. God would protect them. They'd be quite safe in their monastery, no matter what happened outside. And, and then you've got the uncertainty of, well, obviously everybody outside, but but once it starts to infiltrate another mm. monastery, which it does, obviously, suddenly there's this great uncertainty where you yeah. had certainty. So it, it, there's quite a, a conflict at the heart of it, I think, with those who, particularly churchmen, who had very sort of set beliefs up for the most part. Yes, I mean, it must have destroyed their belief in their own safety, their own faith. Um, uh, you know, you've, mm. you've, you've devoted your life to God, and so you feel that in some way that's going to give you a protection. If indeed yeah. it is at the wrath of God, then if you're pious, surely he wouldn't be angry with you. So why, <laughs> why, why would you? Exactly. Why would you fall victim? Yeah, you'd sort of expect the plague to kill off everybody who who had sinned a lot. Exactly, yeah. But conversely, you know, um, the monasteries were very much uh, more affected than, than many other parts mm. of society. And that's probably to do with they lived in these confined uh, communities. Mm. And obviously we all know about how, <laughs> how plague yeah. spreads. So they 
fell victim to that quicker in some ways than, than, than many other people. Yeah. They were safe so long as they could keep it outside, but once it was in, yeah. they were in such a yeah. confined space. And probably dur during the, the early weeks before it became very apparent what was going on, perhaps they were going out and giving people mm -hmm. the last you know, the last sacraments uh, and therefore catching it themselves in some way or other and then coming back into a, a small enclosed living space and then of course it spread like wildfire mm. and one of the themes of the good death is is a good death isn't it the idea that when you sort of end your days you have mm -hmm. you have been forgiven yeah. and you have forgiven and you're sort of moving on to the next stage because obviously the medieval yeah. mindset was that death was part of the of the process but the Obviously, the plague rather, again, upset that natural order of what should happen because so many people died and probably quite a lot of them died without the, the last rites and so on. They did. And I think that wasn't going back to talking about fear and uh, mm. panic. It was that idea that you would be, you know, you die without having received the last sacraments and then mm. therefore you spend an awful lot longer in purgatory. But interestingly, I think the church gave... Uh, gave orders at one point that even women could hear a last confession <laughs> even women even women <laughs> they were so desperate <laughs> we can't do it <laughs> well it's much like in our pandemic during covid the church moved their services online and said that people didn't have to even the catholic church said you didn't have to go to church every sunday so yeah. they do make allowances eventually eventually yeah yeah i suppose they you know they understood how how distressing it was for people to to die without mm. without that, that highly, highly ritualized yeah. death that people were used to mm. or really sought out if possible so have your own recent experiences of the pandemic changed how you write about the black death in um january 2019 i did a podcast and i actually said something along the lines of you know we're very lucky that we <laughs> will never live through something like this we can't imagine what it must be like i guess uh, in answer to your question it gave me a lot more respect and kind of compassion for them at the time because although it was it was terrible for us and i don't mean to downplay people's individual suffering we lost 0.001 percent of our population i'm not underplaying that tragedy but can you imagine if 50 percent of us 50 percent of us had died yeah. you know yeah. you know the people at that time as if we've just said they didn't know what it was they didn't have mm. any furlough they didn't have any medicines they didn't have any sort of promise of vaccinations uh, they were just completely ignorant as to what was going on and losing people left right and center and having to bury their own dead or, or abandon them yeah. um yeah. in a way that must have been two or three months must have been absolute it must have been hell on earth mustn't it mm. it just yeah. must have been and that's what it's actually so surprising about the black death yeah. is when we see stories about apocalypses on television, you tend to see those scenes afterwards where the world's completely collapsed and society's been destroyed and there's just people mm. roaming the streets with guns and dogs. Do you know what I mean? You know, that's, yes, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, that sort of trope you often see on television. But that didn't mm. that didn't happen. Society quite quickly yeah. reformed and, and, and did actually carry on, but just with... A lot less people. So going back to your, your, your question, Sharon, yeah, I, I I just felt a lot more compassion for them, yeah. And and it, it just helped me to understand a little bit of what they were going through without having, with only just a tiny drop of it ourselves. Mm. Yeah. At what point did they know what was coming, do you think? They they must have, in, in the book, you refer to the monks being aware that 
there is this thing coming. Mm -hmm. But do you think they had any concept at all of how devastating it would be or, or, or not? Yeah, I, I, there were rumours. Um, the King, uh, Edward III, sent um, some papal representatives to Avignon, which is obviously where the Pope was at that time. This was in 1348, and they came back with all sorts of stories from Europe. So I, I think it was known in in certain circles. I mean, we were very much a trading country at that point. You know, mm. We'd been at war recently with France as well, so... So there would have been rumours, but mm. of course, you know, there was there was no newspapers, there was no internet, obviously. The information would have been disseminated through the church, through letters, um, and the church were very, they were very good at keeping information to themselves or just letting people know what they wanted them to know. So there would have been an attempt probably to keep it under wraps to an extent so that mm. there wasn't an, an enormous panic. But but yeah, I, 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 I think they would have, they would have guessed, they would have had hints about what was what was coming i just think those in power and the church like the monasteries communicated with each other they did yeah. so they would have shared their stories the court mm -hmm. would have shared its story would have had the stories from europe but the people in the little villages in like Somerset yeah. and your villages in kent the rumors would have been a lot more limited and they wouldn't have known necessarily what was coming until that first case hit the village and then suddenly you know they see how quickly it spread exactly they, they i mean life was that old thing about it being sort of hard and short and what was that old saying hard short and full of misery <laughs> and full of misery yeah um you know their lives were very busy if you were working on the land you just would have been getting on and doing your job hoping to survive under normal circumstances let alone worrying about mm. about a plague so you're absolutely right if you lived out in some little tiny village in, in Kent or, or wherever it was in the country it, it probably just thought, oh that's just a problem for other mm. people even if you'd heard about it it won't yeah. affect us and then of course it it spread in the way it did with with great mm. velocity actually once it landed in in Dorset in 1348 it spread very quickly throughout Britain. I also think we have a tendency to natural optimism and I think that worked against us in 20 in the beginning of 2020 and it probably worked against them you know like it won't happen to us or you know like the first world war thing of it will be over by Christmas we never expect to, anything to last too long you know so long as we behave mm. we shut our doors it'll go over by us and that will be it it'll be over in a few months and we'll get back to normal yeah. and i don't think we ever realized the long-term impact no no and i think we've gone through a collective i don't know about you but this sort of we've kind of erased it from our memories a little bit um mm. or we don't like to think about it it's sort mm. of i know certainly in in my job when i'm talking about ideas uh, with 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 various people in the industry they don't really want people don't want books set there they don't they don't want tv mm. series set in the mm. in 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 the pandemic it's no. let's forget it ever happened i must admit i watched a program it was a police drama and they were all wearing face masks because they were doing it during the pandemic so and they did it in the pandemic and i'm like thinking i don't want to see this no it's <laughs> exactly this is exactly why because i think as i say people have this sort of collectively we want this it was so painful that we kind of at the moment are no doubt you know, maybe in 20 years' time or maybe sooner, yeah. 10 years' time, we will start to see dramas and more, more mm. um, books and whatever set set during the time. But that, that's, my, that's my kind of feeling on it. 
<laughs> let's erase it somehow from our memory yeah but just going back to um what you're saying about sort of the way that people felt about um that we have a sort of a, a positive outlook i think that the medieval mindset was slightly different they had that whole kind of mentor mori yeah. that death was always mm. around you you, mm. you they had almost like a, a fascination with with death. You see it everywhere, don't you? In all yeah. of the the artwork, um, death wasn't kind of pushed away and hidden in the in the way that we do. We, we don't we don't like to acknowledge death, do we? Mm. No, I know what you mean. It was an accepted part of yeah. life, in a sense. Absolutely, death was part of the whole journey. And it wasn't the end of the journey either. That's the other thing. That's, that's right. That's the yeah. most important thing about the medieval Absolutely. mindset is that yeah. death was just a sort of staging post. And then you've got what follows after that. Mm -hmm. So yeah. totally different mindset, really. Yeah, yeah. And and they would have seen death around them all the time in the way that we never do. So, yeah, I, I wonder if if when, when it happened, it, they would have been much more pessimistic than mm. we, we tended, you know, hope you know oh there'll be a vaccine or lockdown's going to end whatever mm. maybe the, the oh, it's just fed back into their their narrative that death happens you know and maybe that helped them cope with it a little better right perhaps yeah maybe the other thing that struck me when you when you were talking about the covid and so on was that there's a huge difference in information levels i think you alluded to it briefly is that we we don't know everything but we get everything sort of bombarded at us so we know that 10,000 people died there or, you know, and thousands of miles away. But in the Middle Ages, they had well, most people had sort of more or less zero information or if they had any, it probably wasn't true anyway. I wonder how that I mean, I don't know that you probably don't know the answer either, but I wonder how that made a difference between what happened to us and what happened to them. Was it better not to have that information constantly bombarding you or is it worse it just struck me that it's a very different setting for a play yeah i mean they were literally in the dark uh, although then they would have seen they would have seen the bodies being buried um, yeah it's quite difficult to get information in terms of like there's always estimates it was 50 percent mm. of the population that died but in some areas it could have been up as high as 70 percent. but there's there's lots of questions about how, what the population size was anyway I, mm. i've yeah. seen estimates that you know sort of around the late 1340s for it, the population could have been four million but it could have been five and a half million I, you know, <laughs> sort of, yeah um, yeah i mean if you don't know how big the population yeah was it's rather tricky to, yeah. to estimate how many died yeah but interestingly um i found this shocking but it took sort of another 200 and something years for the population to recover mm. extraordinary isn't it you were saying earlier about society sort of picking itself up and, and getting on. Mm. And I think it's something we, we tend to forget about the past is that, and Sharon and I have said this to a number of people or, or discussed it, is the direct relationship between the land and your life. Mm. Somebody has to grow crops. Yes. Otherwise, forget the plague, you're all going to die anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so life has to go on. Ordinary people can't just say, oh, well, forget it. We'll, we'll just wander the land killing people <laughs> because uh, that may happen in modern films. But at the time, salvation lay in growing crops, farming animals. Absolutely. You just had to get you had to get on and plow yeah. the fields and plant the seeds and tend to the livestock. The people who survived actually did quite well out of it because they yes. they could take over bigger farms. They could um, take over livestock of the families that had died. Uh, they could ask for more wages and, and they got them. Mm. It was quite a, a good period for women, actually, funnily <laughs> enough, because uh, a lot of the guys, men had died. So a lot of women, you saw a lot of women actually taking over 
the family roles that would have been um, done previously by men. So so very, for a very brief period of time, it was quite quite liberating for women. Yeah, that's true. And if their husbands had died... Yeah, that's sort of like wartime. <laughs> well, if their husbands had died, then they weren't risking pregnancy for a while either, were they? So... <laughs> well, this is true as well. <laughs> Very true as well, yes. You know, uh, <laughs> there might have been... There might be three children in and would have had another seven. No husband, that's it. I'm yeah, stuck with yeah. the three. I've got the three yeah. children and now I don't have to worry every nine months that I'm going to die. Yes, exactly. And, and we, we another effect was this, the growth after the plague was of, of the middle classes. So the middle classes were, mm. you know, where, where the women were more educated, where mm. the families weren't possibly quite as large um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and that probably wouldn't have happened mm. either without without the Black mm. Death. So, or not in the way it... Probably would have taken a lot longer anyway. A lot longer, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Derek. Yeah. 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 We always think of the Black Death as 1348, 1349. But it kept coming back. Yeah, it did. It, it made a massive resurgence in 1361, yeah. where that time it killed... It was known as the Children's Plague. I don't know if you've read anything about this, but um, yeah. it was... It was... It affected men, rich men... What, and rich, particularly rich boys, much more than than other parts of society. And Ooh. well, no, nobody had the answer to it. But the research is suggesting that it's to do with that the the pathogens, the the plague pathogens, fed on um, needed iron to sort of. I'm not a biologist, but the, but the iron was important in the way that the the, the plague uh, bacteria uh, reacted. And so, rich young men tended to have a diet. Mm. Uh, rich in meat whereas mm. poorer people didn't and, and women, menstruating women didn't so, mm. so anybody who had a sort of a bit of an iron deficiency strangely mm. enough had a, a sort of <laughs> protection at that point against the plague so mm. um so yeah no it was it was a constant it, you're mm. absolutely right it just kept coming back and back and back and well, it never went away did it i mean it still still exists still exists yeah. <laughs> it's just now we have antibiotics Thank and God, um yeah. You don't necessarily die from it, but yeah. yeah, it's amazing actually that you just think of it as in the past, but yeah, it didn't just happen. I mean, you still see when you're in the looking at the Tudors, every now and then there's a mention that Henry VIII has gone to Hampton Court because there's plague in London. <laughs> yes, it was mm. it was just endemic by that point, wasn't it? And yeah. you know, now you'll read about you know some mm. poor prisoners, yeah. some I'm trying to think where it did turn up recently. I think somewhere in South America. Yeah, yeah, so it, it's still, it's still, it's still there. hasn't gone away. Yeah. Mm. So your hero, let's get back to the book. <laughs> your hero, sort of, is a novice, is a former novice monk, mm. Oswald de Lacey. I was thinking about this. I was reading it. It must have been a conflicting time for monks, balancing the desire for self-preservation with their duty to the community, because they have this, you know, they they are in this gated community where they can just lock the doors. Mm. And wait for it to pass. But at the same time, they're supposed to minister to the sick, do weddings and funerals and mm. be there for the community. It must have been a really conflicting time for some of them. But yeah, I, th I think you've hit the nail on the head there when you say some of them, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were undoubtedly there were men of faith. There were monks who, who would 
prepared to risk their own lives to go and carry out their, you know, their ministries, whatever. But I think uh, there were an awful lot of monks as well who were, were there because it was a, not exactly a career choice, but they were wealthy. They were, the the mm. monasteries were hugely wealthy and then they were sort of units mm. where people had a quite a, a high standard of living. You, you probably watched a, a history programme not so long ago looking at the diets when they managed to analyse bones of monks and seen that they had incredibly good diets. So that's not to decry and say that they were all just in it for themselves, but they seem to be in the same position as a lot of society in that they were just fearful and panicked. Mm. And you're right, what, what conflict did that lead them to internally? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think the thing is, we tend to, these days, I have this conversation with my son quite a bit, actually. He's uh, doing military history, but we talk about this a lot. These days, we think of monks and priests as having a calling and they're there yeah. because of religion. Mm-hmm. Whereas, And I'd say to my son, the medieval church was political Absolutely. first and foremost. And it's hard to understand that in this day and age, but it was such a political force mm. and everything they did was more about promoting the church yeah. than being Christian. It was, it was sort of like, almost like a... A civil service, wasn't it? Yeah. The biggest multinational in the world, really. Yeah, yeah. it was. It was an organisation. It was a conglomeration. of. It was business. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. They owned land. They owned people mm. as, as serfs who worked yeah. their land. They had to work the church land for the profit mm. of the church. Completely right. And uh, I was lucky enough to go to school many years ago in in what was once an archbishop's palace wow. the whole kind of concept of you think of palaces belonging to kings and queens mm-hmm. the archbishops mm. had their own palaces as well um yeah. Yeah. you know and they they were as wealthy as the barons and the earls they they, they were um yeah. and obviously they came into conflict mm. every so often with the monarchs and we you know until henry mm. the eighth <laughs> had had enough of them for many reasons but um but yeah it, 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 i think that's the where you do have to look at the church at that period so so when I'm asked which is a very good question about you know did they feel conflicted I just haven't found too much evidence of that Sharon I, mm. I don't want to be cynical but <laughs> but <laughs> well to be fair your character Oswald is rather cynical because he doesn't really he, he can't seem to find his faith himself can he so um, no. I understand but that was the thing. Faith wasn't a requirement for joining a monastery. No, it, it wasn't. Although you would mm. really have made sure you didn't express that opinion. Um, you would have kept it to yourself. But yes. Yeah. And I guess if you're from an ordinary family and you're hyper intelligent and somebody in the church recognises this and mm. you have the chance to have an education Absolutely. and be provided for and so on. This is a real bonus. This is great mm. from your point of view and your family's yeah. more important because you're one less mouth to feed for mm. them. But also they have a certain kudos of you being in the church. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it would it would have been a, a great option for many particular sort of second third sons where there was no particular role for them in the family estate or whatever yeah. go into the church be educated rise up through the ranks get promoted to being an archbishop maybe get get, get your own palace yeah. <laughs> you know? well, abbots um, did pretty well as well mm. so 
I mean, obviously, The Good Death and your other books are murder mysteries. So mm. you have to balance, I guess, telling the story of the murder uh, and the who done it, as it were, with the, the background of the black death. How do you kind of ensure that, that one doesn't sort of replace the other or overwhelm the other? Or has that not been a problem? It's a it's a it's a good question um, because you write historical fiction that you know how tempting it is to sort of fill your pages with your research. <laughs> <laughs> One of the books is set in Venice, and I did a lot of research for that, and um, and not much of it turned up in the book because it didn't fit with the with the plot. And I'm mm. I'm quite strict on that. I look at my plot first based on whether or not it could have, it's feasible in the historical setting, and then. I tried to behave as if I was writing a contemporary novel in the way that, you know, if you and I were writing a novel set now, we wouldn't we wouldn't go into great long explanations about how Parliament worked or yeah. we wouldn't do that, would we? So I tried to come at it from, from that angle. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of research underneath. It's like an iceberg. It's kind of underneath mm-hmm. the surface. But the stuff that gets through to the top, I hope, probably, you know, I probably have once or twice added things in because I just can't help myself. But, you know. <laughs> I try to keep it relevant to to the story because I think first and foremost I am a crime writer. I ha- I'm writing crime novels that happen to be in the 14th century. That that's my mm. that's my approach. Yeah, I mean I have to say I think a good death works really well because of the dual storyline and the. It enables you to tell the events or that took place during the Black Death, whilst at the same time telling almost another story. So I think it works very well. I think that the balance is great. And I didn't feel certainly that that the Black Death overwhelmed the whole murder mystery. So I guess you you nailed it. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Um, I, mean, I suppose all of the books are set in and around yeah. the Black Death from one angle or another. So so hopefully. <laughs> Maybe by by that point, I don't know, maybe I, I kind of, um, it was sort of in, not exactly in the background, but I didn't feel the need to sort of shoehorn mm. an awful lot of information in there and assumed a certain level of knowledge from, from my readers mm. with the idea that maybe they can go away and if there's something that really interests them, research it separately. Yeah. But I don't feel it belongs in my books. Mm. I think with it as well, because it was told in flashback from 20 years yeah. back, it worked well because the character himself, Oswald, he would have just seen it as a part of everyday life by that point. You know, yeah. he'd been living with the Black Death around and about him for 20 years. Yeah. So it wouldn't be a big deal to him that it happened when the Black Death started because he was just he would have been so used to it by the point he was telling the story. Yeah, I think he's quite matter-of-fact mm. about it. Uh, he's lived through it for 20 years and, and the after-effects, and he's lived through it in two or three other, you know, resurgences of, of the plague. So it's, oh, it's that again, you know. And <laughs> I go back to COVID, I think we've been a little bit like yeah. that again, haven't we, ourselves? Well, oh, yes, from... you look at it, the way we reacted in 2020 yeah. to the way now you hear someone's got COVID. It's like, okay, we'll not visit this week. Yeah. <laughs> But we'll be there next week. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, um, I, yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I have no idea if the hospitals are full of people with COVID at the moment. I would have known that two years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I used to look at the figures every morning when I woke up to see how many were in the area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's like I haven't a clue. I know it's still around, but I must admit I was on the tube yesterday and um, <laughs> there was somebody coughing <laughs> near me, and I suddenly thought, <laughs> oh god. <laughs> I think it does change your attitude to that, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it has does. to. Yeah. Mm. Now, it's human nature, yeah. really. 
Yeah. Um, I, I, I've had exactly the same experience. I've been thinking, hmm, I wonder why they're coughing. <laughs> what is it? That what is the reason behind that cough? <laughs> Having said that, I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I stood up and moved or anything. I just, just the whole coughing oh. thing just, I suppose it reignited a little bit of that real, I don't want to say paranoia, oh. let's say fear that we all had. Mm. Um, three, three or four years ago. Actually, it's a long time since I read the the first couple of books of the series. Can you remind me when you started it? Was he experiencing the plague for the first time? I just can't remember. It was just in the um. It was just in the after. It was literally set just after the the flashbacks end. So it was just after the just after the plague. So he'd literally come back to. He'd been called back to to become Lord Summers Hill because his father and brothers had died. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to remember as I was reading it. Now, where where did the first book start? No, it's it was quite. It's all. I had to. I had to timeline it all. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I bet you did. (laughs) Uh, But I wanted this this novel to sort of top and tail the series. If if you see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, works well. So, how easy is it to find the research material for the period? Not not that easy is the answer because I wanted to know how ordinary people lived um that was that's my kind of interest in history is is mm. how I would have lived in during those times you know what, what would an ordinary person have been like what would their lives have been like so there's a few texts um there's things like well, obviously the Canterbury Tales I know they're slightly later but uh they're very a very useful mm. source there's an absolutely brilliant illustrated um manuscript the luttrell psalter have you yeah yeah it's amazing and it's that was mm. uh, written and, and um illuminated in the 1340s so that was an enormous help to me to see what sort of clothes people were wearing how they were how they were farming uh, what sort of horses they were riding um uh, we've got piers plowman that was written during the, the, that time um you've got mm. the decameron by boccaccio i know that's in italy but it's it's a mm. plague book mm. and and other than that it's it's about you know i'm very lucky that where i live in kent is quite still quite a medieval landscape it's still um it's the wield of kent i've heard it said yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i moved there about uh, 15 years ago and as saying to sharon earlier we you know previously lived in the northwest very industrial landscape with with canals mm. and chimneys and, and yeah. mills and factories and then i came to live in r- rural kent and it's like God, what, where, what happened to the Industrial Revolution? <laughs> Didn't happen here. <laughs> so the landscape is still very, you know, it's sort of isolated farmsteads. It's um, small, irregular fields. It's wooded. It's hilltop villages. Uh, there's a lot of um, homes that are those wheeled and halls, which are the sort of five bay bay timber built actually so you know it's amazing they've survived but mm. you see them all over the place so I was very inspired by by the place where I live so uh, you know that was a great source mm. uh, of inspiration and research as well and then uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Weald and Downland Museum I I haven't I've been meaning to go there for about 40 years or whatever they've taken all sorts of vernacular housing from the south and they've rebuilt it in in the way it would have originally have been mm. So taking out chimneys, for example, mm. if, if the house was a 14th or 15th century, it wouldn't have had a chimney and um, or, or windows. And so you can really go there and see what it was actually like to live in a house like like that. You know, it's, mm. it's invaluable, and it's, it's, but it's difficult. It's difficult to find. Yeah. And there's a book called um, The Book of Marjorie Kemp, yes. which is yeah. kind of frustrating. It's often billed as the first autobiography. And so it's written by this woman who's, I think she's having sort of psychotic, <laughs> psychotic episodes, actually. <laughs> 
Yes, but I mean, she. When you think about it, with her, she she went on pilgrimages to Spain and all over Europe. Well, she did it while she was crying all the time. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I mean. That was, this is my frustration with her. So she went to Venice, and I thought fantastic because I, you know, I set the book in Venice. But unfortunately, she just. All you hear about Venice is how she was she was crying and wailing and praying and yeah. oh, could you not just could you not just look up and <laughs> <laughs> one tiny detail, please <laughs> stop crying for a moment and look around. Yeah. <laughs> Poor woman. I mean, so yeah, so that's that's kind of where I, I look to for for my research. But it, mm. it yeah, if we're 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 at a hundred and fifty or so years later than then of course you know once you get into printing and mm. there's an awful lot more a lot more available. Mm. Yeah, anything medieval is pretty is patchy. Yeah, isn't it? although I think that's great for a writer as well because that's where you you fill in the gaps sometimes, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's good for fiction. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's good for fiction. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yes, not so great for nonfiction. <laughs> it, it's interesting what you were saying about uh, looking at illuminated manuscripts, and you you know you from the images you get some idea of how they're dressed and so mm. on. And it, it, it struck me that we're sort of we're building a picture of the past on the images that survived mm. and um, not many did survive in total. So, you know, it, it's one of those things about the, the past that we can never really do much about is that we're stuck with what there is. And that is just a, just a fraction mm. of what there was. So very difficult to construct any sort of mm. picture. With the Luttrell Psalter, you, you got to remember that it was a book that was um, written and illuminated for, I can't remember what the name of the fan, maybe they were the Luttrells. Um, they were the Luttrells. Well, they were the Luttrells, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was done for them. So when you see pictures of, of the people who worked on their estate, it's kind of happy peasants, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> happy, sort of um, yeah. fulfilled, well-fed peasants, because that would have pleased their narrative. How accurate actually was it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You're not going to put, you're not going to draw a picture of a peasant who's been working for sixteen hours, hasn't been fed for no, three exactly, days, exactly, <laughs> and yeah. it's in rags. Yeah, so you have to take it all with a little little pinch of salt, definitely. <laughs> and you also have to remember that rabbits don't joust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's some incredibly weird stuff in there as well. These those sort of monsters. That, mm. What on earth was going? You know, they would decorate the margins with these crazy beasts. You know, it's called artistic um, license. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wonder, I've often wondered about that. Was that a, a form of free speech? The, the only place they felt <laughs> that they could. <laughs> you know. um, they could go wild. <laughs> yeah, because it was a very you know you can imagine um, how restricted life was. Perhaps that was yeah. one way of expressing yourself. Uh, one one route. I don't know. <laughs> So the the good death is 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 that the last in the series, or will there be more Oswald de Lacey books? That that is the last. I I sensed from what you said earlier about top and tailing the series that 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 was that was probably it. It was obviously a, a really good way to finish it because there was so much closure in in this book. Mm -hmm. So what are you working? Are you working on something now? Or I am, but it's completely different. I'm doing some TV yeah. work. It's um, got three projects in development. That lovely term. <laughs> are you able to talk about them or or, or not? Um, I live with with we're with a couple of production companies, and I'm waiting to hear whether or not they'll get greenlit. So I yeah. can't really say any more than that. No, no, they're completely different. They're contemporary. They are still the, in the murder mystery 
psychological right. thriller yeah. genre. So yeah. I feel everything I've done. And is that screenplay? Yeah, it's, it's, it's TV. It's TV yeah. drama, TV series drama. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, we'll await development. How exciting! <laughs> <laughs> that must be refreshing, though, having gone from medieval to modern. There is the yeah. Thank you, Sharon. Yeah, there is um, some. There is some joy in in wanting to set write a scene and think I can just sort of go outside and see what people are wearing mm-hmm. or, or not have to you know if you you're writing a, uh, in the past you you can't take anything for granted can you you know no. when I'm writing the 14th century people didn't have pockets you, you know you, you <laughs> yeah <laughs> inevitably made mistakes but you you want to minimise those those anachronisms as much as possible. Yeah. No, there's so many things, quite basic things, as you say, pockets and all sorts of things. Uh, I've just finished writing a, a modern crime novel and it's just such a relief. I didn't have to do <laughs> hours of research. I didn't have to, to go through all these sort of tomes and online research to find out just the simple things. Yeah. No, no, exactly right. You know, you've, you've got your scene, you know what your characters want to do. Um and it's all sorts of layers beneath that that you need to go through. Is it possible? Mm. How would they have said it? You know, the way the things that you're describing in the room, would they actually have existed? Yeah. You know, I mean, I know that in terms of um, the Oswald books that he is, he is a slight anachronism in as much as he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't have faith. He's, he, I think some of his feelings about the, some of his, Personality is more twenty first century, I think, but that was a, that was quite mm. a deliberate choice from my from my point of view. Yeah, mm. I think I've I've done the same a bit in in places, partly because I think for the modern reader to follow someone yeah. who had a true medieval mindset would be really odd yeah. and really yeah. difficult. That's exactly. I think also yeah. it works that because um, Oswald's a re- he's a Renaissance man, isn't he? So he's yeah. he's ready for the Renaissance <laughs> before everybody else is. It's been 150 years. Um, well, for in, <laughs> British Renaissance, but yeah, <laughs> yeah it's about 150. Yeah, but years. he's been to Venice, so you can understand how Absolutely, you know yeah. he's already got the modern ideas. They were yes. peeping through then, so he was, you know. Absolutely, no, they 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 were uh, they were in the 1350s and. In, in yeah, in Venice, definitely. I think it did take. I think it was fifteen hundred or so, wasn't it, in, in England before we mm. started to see the, mm. the Renaissance. Yeah. But yes, he he yeah. is he is a Renaissance man. So um, and as you say, Derek, it's quite difficult to to if you're writing a series and you're sitting inside the head of somebody for mm. you know best part of a million words to to <laughs> to <laughs> uh, to be inside the head of somebody who whose opinions you you really would struggle with yeah you can't relate to it so your next one your next projects are all tv mm. projects is there another book series in your head waiting to come out there are, are always ideas you know you know what we're like <laughs> yeah <laughs> there are always um so many ideas and i yeah i start jotting things down but at the moment it's very in its infancy i'd love to i'd love to go back to writing uh novels um it's been it's been nice for to take the last two or three years to to move into um, script writing for a while. That's where I started, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of where I see my home, but not necessarily. <laughs> so would you go back to the same period or is there another period you fancy? I definitely go back to a period with more research, <laughs> where, there was more, where there was more material. <laughs> I, I must say, when I did um, all my books of medieval, except for Heroines of the Tudor World, 
which comes out in a few months. And even, that was just so refreshing because there's so much more information around about the Tudors yeah. and so many more contemporary chronicles and more fulfilled, you know, they're more rounded. You've got everything in there. Whereas with the um, yeah. medieval period, you're looking at different chronicles to try and get the whole picture. You've got the whole picture with the um, Tudors most of the time. So I must say, it was ever so refreshing to not have to work so hard to find the information. My theory about why there are so many fiction books written in the mm -hmm. Tudor period is exactly what you've mm -hmm. just said, because you can actually find things out relatively easily. If you go back into the, even in the 15th century, as I've found, um, it isn't that straightforward. You can find out a lot about some things, but nothing about others. So it's very, very patchy. And then as you go back into the 14th, 13th mm -hmm. and so on, well, you know, you're really sort of struggling. And when I went back to the, the <laughs> 5th century, well, you know, you can forget evidence completely. Jeffrey and Monmouth and that's it. <laughs> yes, yeah. Good old Jeffrey. Well, yeah. <laughs> Storyteller. The other thing, you don't realise until you start reading these medieval chronicles, they're all bloody great big gossips. And they don't care if the yeah. stuff they're talking about is true or not. They heard it from somebody, so they're going to put it in their chronicle. <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, I mean, you know, they they love to sort of um, sensationalise, didn't they? Their stories yeah. Were, yeah. were always yeah. quite ex exaggerated. <laughs> yeah. When I read Geoffrey yeah. of Monmouth, when I read Geoffrey of Monmouth, I thought, well, it, I might as well make it up because he's yeah. making it up anyway. Yeah. No, it's uh, <laughs> absolutely true, definitely. Yeah, every chronicle should have a thing on the front saying um, <laughs> any relation, everything in here is fiction, any relation to people living or dead is purely coincidental. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, one of my favourite um, uh, sources has been the, the travels of John Sir John Man Mandeville. Um, you ever read that? It's it's uh, it's this uh, a knight who claimed to have travelled the world in the between I think it was about thirteen ten and thirteen fifty something along along those lines. Oh, so he's the character who's been everywhere and seen the giants. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Well, if you ever get to read read his book, it's 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 absolutely hilarious. Um, but then once again, it feeds into the into the uh, the medieval mind. So he starts off, he travels Europe. I mean, there's lots of questions as to whether he did ever travel mm. or whether he'd kind of slightly bastardised um, Marco mm. Polo. <laughs> but, uh, um, but you know, you see sort of descriptions of Jerusalem and Egypt that, that makes sense. But the farther east he goes, the, the more crazy stuff gets. So there's, there's lands where people only live on the smell of an apple or, <laughs> you know, sort of... Um, you know, one eye in the middle of their chest, yeah. or um, they eat their own children, or and it was the best. Apparently, it was like sort of you know, it was it was the it was a travel manual yeah. from Europe for many <laughs> many sense. People truly believe that's what would happen if you if you went off you know off towards um, India and China. This is what this is what you would encounter. Mm. Well, when you think that uh, even lords wouldn't have travelled far unless they were going to war with the king. So they would have been mainly within their own domains. So hearing about things in far away lands, it would be like, oh yeah, well, who knows, you know. <laughs> well, that that whole thing about the other, yeah. isn't it? That we we don't have that anymore because we we know about mm. the world. Whereas 
they didn't. So if you didn't know what was over the horizon, it was left to your imagination. If, if somebody told you that there was a land where, where people lived on the smell of apple alone, then why wouldn't you believe it necessarily? Um, some people thought the world was flat, mm. others thought it was round. Well, some people still do. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, when you don't know what's over the horizon, going back into their 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 mindset, you know, why not? Why wouldn't it be sort of something quite fearful and frightening and, and whatever, rather than something that was positive and friendly? Yeah. Well, I guess uh, the powers that be, the church, the, the government didn't really want to encourage ordinary people, even educated people, to wander about too much because mm -hmm. they wanted to stay put <laughs> and do as they were told. They did. Um, um, although pilgrimages is quite, their pilgrimage yeah. um, cult is, is extremely interesting. Um, it's quite often the, a village would club together and send one person to, to Jerusalem mm. on their behalf. So certain sorts of travel were encouraged, but, but not en masse. No. Yeah, I mean, I think by the time, you know, you're reading Chaucer and obviously that they're all on a pilgrimage to Canterbury. Um, but I think pilgrimages were becoming by that point kind of like the the package holidays of the medieval times, you know, and people were, oh, let's go on a pilgrimage, it'll be great fun, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Get away from the drudgery of life, meet up with mm -hmm. other people, have a few drinks. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'm a bit facetious there, but, you, you know, it was... Um, I think pilgrimages are much overlooked in the medieval period from the modern standpoint, the importance of them and, and how many pilgrims there were sort of washing about the place, really, going to certain shrines. Yeah, and the, the way the way that they, they moved, um, particularly down through Europe, there, every there was a sort of trail and every stop there, um, the cities would make sure to give them yeah. something to visit. Well, yeah. They're, they're the medieval tourists, aren't they? I mean, although what you were saying was a bit tongue-in-cheek, I think there's a lot of truth in the fact that if if, if a pilgrim is coming yeah. to the place you are in, you want to fleece them as much as possible. Mm. You may want to help them. You may not want any harm to come to them, but you also regard them as a, as a means of gaining some more income. Yeah, I mean, it definitely happened with Venice because um, a lot of pilgrims to, to Jerusalem did go from Venice. So they'd... They'd sort of get the pilgrims together in, I think it was sort of uh, April, May time. That was a good time to sail. And, but they'd keep them in Venice for, for as long <laughs> as possible before they set sail. Yeah. And there were all sorts of shrines and relics mm. to go and visit in Venice itself before you even got on the pilgrim mm. roads and went down, down to Jaffa. Yeah. You can almost imagine local Venetians saying, oh, you want to mm. see relics? Oh, well, we have some very yeah. interesting relics. Yeah. My, my favourite relic was... The Molar of Goliath. <laughs> I haven't heard of that one. That's a good one. That was in Venice. That was in Venice. <laughs> the one I always think about is there's one of three heads of John the Baptist. <laughs> three different churches. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. There's so many. I mean, there's so many parts of the true cross. <laughs> and the cross must have been an absolutely enormous, like, tree-sized <laughs> thing, you know. But I don't think I, I don't think that was the point. I don't think people. I don't think they. I kind of almost knew. I don't know. I, there was a sort of pact between the pilgrim and, and the relic that it almost didn't matter in some mm. respects. Yeah, it's what it represented rather than what it actually yes. was. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think we finally exhausted our questions, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for indulging us. We didn't know very much at all about the Black Death, but I feel I feel like I know a lot more about how 
people reacted to it and how they behaved and how big um, an impression it made on medieval life at the time. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's such an enormous topic. I feel we've only sort of scratched the surface, but um, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I mean, and there's so many great books I could uh, uh, recommend. You know, if people are more interested in the subject, so things like um, the Black Death by John Hatcher is a fantastic book. Um, so yeah, so I hope people are inspired to learn learn more about it. And thank you very much for inviting me along. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> good to talk to you. Yes, and you, and you. Yeah, thank it's you. been absolutely fabulous talking to you, Sarah. Nice to thank finally you. meet you. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much to SD Sites, Sarah, for joining us. Um, if you do want to look at her series, it starts with Plagueland and ends with The Good Death, and I highly recommend it. Absolutely. Do join us next time when we will be welcoming one of my favourite authors talking about the Hundred Years' War, David Gilman. I can't wait to have a chat with him about his latest book. I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. Thanks for listening. And do subscribe to avoid missing a podcast. If you enjoyed it, perhaps give it a like. We'd love to have a rating or a review from you. Join us next time.